you're tuned into the Tokyo Living Podcast, where we help you live a healthy and enjoyable life in one of the most amazing cities in the world. Chris Kuluchi is a Tokyo-based ice hockey enthusiast. On this episode, Sam and Chris talk about the fascinating places his sporting interest has taken him, in particular, his eye-opening trip to North Korea. Tokyo Living is proudly brought to you by Club 360, changing lives through health and fitness. Chris Kalichi, welcome to the Tokyo Living Podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me. Pleasure now to be got, here. Yeah, no, we appreciate your time today. Um, we've got you on the show today to talk about um, your experiences, uh, so playing hockey and, and some of the weird and wonderful places that your hockey has taken you. Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps if you can just start off by giving the listeners a bit of a background on yourself, uh, what do you do and, and uh, what brought you to Japan? Oh, sure. Uh, well, let's see. I originally from New York in the States. I uh, came back into Japan 15 years ago, back in 2006, uh, kind of on a whim. Uh, I had traveled around good parts of Europe uh, and, you know, the Americas, never in Asia. So I thought, okay, let me finish university and continue traveling. So I really just essentially just threw a dart at the map, landed somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. And I was like, okay, well, that's not going to work. So then I Googled work in Asia and this opportunity came up to teach English in Japan. So I, just, I came here to do that. And I told everyone it was going to be for about a year. And then, you know, a decade and a half later, I'm still here. So that's, that's the story for a lot of us. Uh, yeah, how I, pro- I promised my, my family three years and we're up to the 17. So there, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> there seems to be a running thread here. Um, I'll tell you one thing, though. One of the reasons why I stayed was because of hockey. And that might sound really strange, uh, especially because I lived in the countryside down in Nagasaki. Um, But a bit of background on hockey. I started playing when I was not not too young, nine years old. Uh, For most like professional hockey players, and I'm far from that, they start playing and skating when they're like four or five. So nine was a bit of a late start. Um, Started playing goalie. Fun fact, uh, because at the time I was doing Taekwondo, studying martial arts. And I happen to be quite flexible. So the flexibility required of the goalie position was a natural fit. Yeah. Uh, but of course, nine-year-olds don't shoot the puck on net a lot. So as a goalie, I was quite bored. So I eventually moved out of net and went to defense. And then finally up until uh, moving into forward. So uh, yeah, played throughout high school, a uh, little bit in college. Uh, but then when I went to Japan, I figured, okay, that's it. I'm done. There's no way I'm going to play hockey in the countryside of Japan. Uh, turns out, uh, uh, when I got to, or before I went there, I did some Googling and I found that there is a, there was a hockey rink in Nagasaki, although it wasn't a full rink. It was a half rink because they converted the other half into batting cages, because that's a way more popular sport here, baseball than hockey. Uh, and they didn't really have a proper Zamboni. They just had a bunch of freshmen in college that were coming on the ice with hoses and, and rakes. Uh, so it, it was a little slapped together, but it was still a thing. And uh, yeah, I, I came here, I got in touch with one of the other foreigners on the team. And he was like, yeah, of course, you can, you're welcome to play. Uh, of course, that meant a, a three-hour drive, uh, round trip, oh, wow. three or four times a week just to do it. But let me tell you, it, 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 it kept my sanity because I was, mm. you know, I was a city boy living in the middle of nowhere in Japan. And it mm. was the one element that I had from home that made me feel like I was connected. And it was a great way to meet Japanese people for the first time. Yeah, yeah. And when did you come to Tokyo? That was uh, about five years. No. 2009. So I spent three years in the countryside. 
-hmm. then I actually almost went back to the States. I had job opportunities lined up to work at the uh, uh, consulate, the Japanese consulate in, in uh, Chicago, which is where I went to university. Uh, and I thought, okay, let me just go ahead and do that. Uh, but then I, I, I was in the back of my mind, I always thought, well, I, I've never really lived in a city. I spent a lot of time in Fukuoka playing in ice hockey tournaments. Uh, and I said, let me try Tokyo. So I came to Tokyo. I had about oh, two weeks or so left on my visa, uh, came in, stayed at a pretty uh, dodgy hotel in Shinjuku. Uh, and I started looking for work. And within about three days, I had a job, a visa and an apartment. So I thought, okay, well, let me try Tokyo for a bit. Uh, oh, wow. That was about 12, 12 years in. Yeah. And what sort of work are you doing now, Chris? Uh, so right now I work for, I work in education. I work for an after school school that focuses on teaching returnee students. Uh, that's to say uh, Japanese students that have lived abroad and then moved back to Japan uh, and they want to keep up their native level of English. Um, so I do a bit of teaching there, but I mostly work at headquarters doing IT work. Okay, cool. Yeah. And uh, when you moved to Tokyo, was it fairly easy to get involved in the hockey scene here as well? Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> very easy. Easier than when you were before, I can imagine. Oh, yeah, yeah, way easier than, than Nagasaki. Um, a quick search, I mean, tokyohockey.com uh, is a website run by a group of uh, fellows out here that do ball hockey. So ball hockey is just hockey where you're, you know, in sneakers running around on foot. I think uh, in Australia we are... call it, well, I think, is it the same as field hockey? No, 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 no. So you, you're using like an ice hockey stick. Yeah. Okay. But you're just on like a sport court, you know, you can play on, you can play on cement as well. You know, like we grew, we, we played it growing up as kids on the street right. in New York, you know? Yeah, so okay. yeah, there's a group of ball hockey guys. There's uh, an entire inline hockey league. Um, yeah. When I moved here, it was out in the um, Kita Senju area, but now it's in Saitama. Also still a bit of a trek, but when I say league, I mean, league with boards, stats online, like seven or eight different divisions. Uh, and then there's, of course, ice hockey. And you have two totally different leagues. You have the Kanagawa League and you have the Tokyo League. Each okay. league has five, six, seven divisions, 10 teams per division. So yeah, there are opportunities to play for sure. Club 360 is Tokyo's premier health, fitness and rehabilitation center, offering physiotherapy, osteopathy, personal training, group fitness classes, boxing, sports massage, pilates, and nutrition consultations. With two full-time locations in Moto Azubu and Higashi Azubu, as well as satellite physiotherapy practices in Shibukoen and Yokohama, Club360 boasts a team of high-level practitioners from all over the world, ready to take care of your injury and fitness needs and guide you on a path towards a healthier and happier life. Come visit us at club360.jp or follow us at club360rupongi on Facebook and Instagram. Now back to the show. Um, so I guess it's just a bit of background for the listeners. Um, mm. How we got sort of started talking about this, you're um, currently in the later stages of uh, rehabilitation from a, a knee surgery. And um, we right. were sort of talking about your functional goals and and uh, obviously the, the hockey is the main one for you. And you said, oh, uh, looking at playing a tournament in December uh, in Ecuador, and that's uh, right. Said, right. Well, that's an interesting place to uh, to play a hockey tournament. And uh, and you said, well, actually, I have a habit of playing hockey tournaments in uh, some interesting places. Um, how did you sort of start doing this? Uh, this, I guess, you know, hockey tourism sort of thing. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I think it started when I came to Japan. I played hockey. I took a bunch of photos of me playing in hockey in Japan and I sent them back to friends in the States and their reaction was, Oh my God, you're playing hockey in Japan. I'm like, well, yeah, I live here and I'm playing hockey. 
So it doesn't seem very exotic to me, but it's wild to you. Uh, and that got me thinking like, oh, where else could I play hockey? So after moving to Tokyo, where there are more hockey players and, and you know just more opportunities all around, I started learning about different tournaments around Asia. So most countries in Asia host an annual ice hockey tournament of sorts. So um, I started getting linked up with those. Uh, there's a great one in Hong Kong, a uh, beautiful rink, a uh, little bit outside by the water. So you got these massive wall to ceiling, 20 meter glass windows that you're overlooking the city on, gorgeous. Bangkok, that's a really fun one. Manila and the Philippines. Seoul does one every now and then. Singapore was the one that I probably did for about five or six years straight. I made a lot of great connections from there. Um, so you've participated these... in, in all these tournaments? All, all of them, yeah. Now. Yeah, wow, awesome. Yeah, uh, th yeah, they were, they were pretty fun. Um, and some of them multiple times, right? So I would make friends that were living there, hockey connections there, and that would spread. And, you know, th there, is, there is this, like, burgeoning community of traveling hockey players. Um, yeah. In fact, there's there's one guy who's known as uh, oh, I forget I'm gonna butcher his handle, but it's like the traveling goalie on Instagram or something along those lines, and he yeah. just makes it a point to play hockey in as many countries as he can. Wow. Uh, so now, mind you, these places because you know I live in Japan are not very exotic. You know, Japan uh, or uh, like Korea, uh, Singapore, Thailand, not very exotic because we're here in Asia. So that got me and a few friends thinking, where else could we go? And that's, that's really where the journey began of going to exotic places. So yeah. uh, uh, I remember exactly where it was. So I, we were in um, Devil Craft, a craft beer uh, in Chicago style pizza place in Hamamatsu Cho. I was with my friend, Ben. So uh, Ben, French Canadian, he's a researcher and professor in international affairs. And at the time he was doing his, uh, or a year before that, he was doing his master's and on East Asian security. So when East Asian security comes up, so does North Korea. And he found a tour company called Kodio Tours uh, that actually ran tours to North Korea. So he went, uh, this was must have been 2014, 2015. He went by himself uh, for maybe six, seven days uh, to kind of tour the main city. And he was doing it for research purposes. I don't think he told the government that. I don't think he told the North Korean government that. I think he was just going as, as a tourist. Yeah. But he was able to get in and yeah, had a, had a great experience. And then we came back and he was telling me about it. And I was like, wow, that, that's amazing. And then he happened to mention, by the way, North Korea's national team is in the IIHF, the International Ice Hockey Federation. I was like, oh, really? They're like t tier four, right? Yeah. They're not playing Canada or Russia or anything. But I was like, oh, that means they must have a team. I was like, and then at the same time, we were like, this is something we have to see if we can do. Can we play <laughs> hockey in North Korea? Uh and so he reached out to the same tour company that he went with and they were like, yeah, we, we can do that. And so they did. Really? Uh, yeah. But what's interesting is they organized a trip, but I couldn't go on that trip. The timing didn't work out for me. So he actually went before I did, uh, had the trip, uh, went with a few guys that was on our club team here in Tokyo, the Tokyo Canadians. They went, they had a great time. And I think the coverage of that trip uh, was uh, found by another guy named Scott Howe. He's going to be a big player in this whole story. Mm. Scott Howe runs what's called the, uh, the Friendship Organization, the Friendship League. Uh, he does all of these trips. Maybe we're going to hear, talk more about him in a minute. But he got wind of this trip, uh, had a co-organizer, and they organized the next trip to North Korea, which I was on. And that was a little bit more involved with the North Korean government itself. Wow. And when was this? When, when did you go over there? This was March 2016, so about five years ago. I think we were there yeah. for about 10 days, 10 days total. 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so, yeah, what was involved in actually setting that up and uh, yeah, and getting you know, prepared to go over that? So, uh, so it was, we had kind of two organizers. One was, as I mentioned, Scott Howe. I think Scott's father works for an organization called Howe International, and they work a lot with the Special Olympics inside of North America. And I think one of their missions was to uh, raise awareness of the Special Olympics in North America. Um, Scott, his son, was helping with that in addition to trying to build up this friendship league, the concept of going to places where you normally wouldn't think to go to do, to, to uh, kind of create connections through sport. They also had a uh, co-organizer, a man by the name of Michael Spaver, and they, they kind of organized it together. So I wasn't really necessarily on the organizing committee, uh, I, but I do remember as a participant receiving information about going. And I, I've been on a lot of trips. I can't, I asked so many questions before going on this trip. Uh, you know, what, what, what should I bring? What should I not bring? Uh, you know, what are, what is the visa situation like? Uh, the visa situation, by the way, is, uh, most places you get a visa stamp in your passport of sorts. You don't get any stamp in your passport whatsoever. You just get a small slip of paper uh, yeah. that admits you into the country. And I don't know if this is something that North Korea does or if it's something that other countries have requested of North Korea, but you can imagine that if you have a stamp in your passport and then you start traveling to other places, it's gonna raise a few eyebrows. So sure. they just avoid all that and just give you a slip of paper. Wow, yeah. Oh. And so, so we, uh, yeah, when you first arrived, what was it like? Uh... Oh, well, before we even arrived, like, it, so we have to, there are two ways to, at the time, because things are always changing, at the time you could get into North Korea one of two ways. You could take the train from Beijing, go up north through Daedong, China, and into, uh, and come down into Pyongyang. Uh, or uh, you, have, you can fly directly from Beijing. At the time, as an American, uh, we were not allowed, American citizens could not take the train through. Uh, okay. Don't know why. Uh, we assumed that it was because the train was traveling through certain areas of the country where they didn't want a lot of eyes to be seen. And because of their relationship with America, uh, you know, they just, they said, okay, all Americans are flying. So we flew uh, on Air Kodeo, which is the North Korean airline. Kodeo, I think um, is, uh, maybe it's an ancient name for Korea or it, maybe it's the name of Korean in Korean, I'm not sure. It's, it's similar to like Ryukyu, the Ryukyu kingdom that is now Okinawa. Yep. So anyway, we, we fly on Air Kodeo. Uh, we're at the airport and we're trying to find the right gate. So we go up to one of the, you know, like the information desk and saying, we're flying to, uh, we're flying to Korea, North Korea, which, which is one of our gate. And they go, oh, okay, you want to go down that way? We're looking at the map. We're like, no, that's, that's going to Seoul. We're going to Pyongyang. And they go, oh, oh, <laughs> the, 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 it was a stark pause. And they go, <laughs> you go that way. And I was like, okay, not a lot of people going in this direction. So, okay. So we go, we go over there, we're getting ready. Uh, you know, we're all suited up because we want to, you know, make a good impression as we enter the country. Uh, the plane looked like it was issued in the Soviet Union back in the 1970s. Uh, we're all in there. I think it was two seats, two seats, pretty packed. Uh, I think there were people smoking on the plane. It was mostly North Koreans and like, you know, a small contingency of hockey players uh, heading there. And mind you, uh, you know, I didn't know anyone going on this trip. Actually, that's not true. I, I knew one guy from a trip in Singapore, but everyone else I met for the first time. So uh, okay, so these weren't people from Tokyo. They were these were just other sort of hockey players from all over the place. Just all of yeah. yeah. Some guys were living in China. Some people were based in the states that flew over. 
Um, you know, when you're organizing a trip to North Korea, it's rare that you're going to get an entire team of guys of that know each other that want to go. So you're kind of just, you know, it's a draft of who's ever um, adventure, adventurous enough to go. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we get there. Uh, we land in their airport and it is gorgeous. It is the most beautiful airport I've ever seen. It is really? brand spanking new. Yeah. The, the floors, you could eat off the floors. Uh, just it, it was just amazing. Um, but then something really strange started to emerge. So as we're going through the airport, there's airport security, you know, there were people at customs. Um, that was also a weird moment, just walking up to the customs booth and thinking, am I really going to put my American passport on a North Korean customs desk? I did. They looked at it. I, I, I didn't know if I should smile or, you know, keep a stoic face. Uh, but either way, they, they just looked at it. They hand me back that piece of paper and they, they let me through. But anyway, so the customs orders, uh, you know, there, there was a, a food kiosk uh, selling drinks with someone staffed there. There were kind of people standing around. I couldn't tell if they were passengers or if they were waiting to pick other people up. Uh, I couldn't really tell, you know, what they were doing. But then you would look up at the, the departure board and arrivals board, right? Be beautiful board like you would see in any airport. There's one plane, our mm. plane that yeah. was landing. What are all of these people doing here to service yeah. one plane? Uh, so they effectively just opened the airport for us. And whether these other people there actually had jobs that they were doing related to the airport or otherwise, we're not entirely sure. But that, that, was, that was our first uh, exclamation point of the trip. Yeah. Huh. Wow. <laughs> um yeah I, I just want to let you uh get going and uh yeah, yeah talk through the whole thing it's, it's just fascinating so so we're there um beautiful be beautiful countryside like um reminding me a lot of uh you know it's very mountainous and i don't know if you've ever been to uh, ethiopia but very similar you're in the city just beautiful mountains in the background uh so we are getting on the bus and we're introduced to our tour guides plural uh, a man and a woman by the name of Kim and Kim, both Kims. We realize that's a bit of a theme, right? It's like, yeah. like Smith in the States or Suzuki in Japan, but lots of Kims there. Uh, the female Kim spoke great English. She was our tour guide. The other male Kim also claimed to be a tour guide in training. Uh, he did not speak English very well. And it quickly emerged that he was, he, he was the one that was actually watching us. Kim was actually meant there, the, you know, the female Kim to give us information, but he was yeah. one of the people there. Uh, ben, uh, my friend who uh, went earlier on his own, he said it was a similar story. When you're there, you're basically, you're with a guide the whole time, right? They're, yeah. they're making sure that you're not doing the things you're not supposed to be doing, uh, not taking photos of the things you're not supposed to be taking pictures of, um, that kind of thing. Uh, two interesting things on the bus ride to the airport. The first was, uh, she said, you can take pictures of anything you want. And we're all like, well, that's a stark contrast to everything else we've ever heard. Yeah. And um, I'm not sure why that is, but our, our suspicion is that they are, they're organizing this tour and guiding us through the areas where it is okay to take photos. So yeah. they, they're kind of cultivating our experience so that they, they know North Korea has, a, has um, a reputation as a place that you can't go and take photos. So I, I think it's a bit of a PR stunt where they're like, okay, let's make sure that they can take pictures wherever they are. Yeah, and I guess At they'll take point, you to the places that are somewhat nice, and so that then you share those photos and, and the um, yeah, yeah, exactly the reputation of the country improves. Exactly, uh, I'll, we'll get to a story later on where that rule broke down, um, but we'll we'll get there. So, the second interesting thing that happened on the bus was uh, 
Kim said, okay, we, uh, let's, you know, let's start teaching some Korean. Like, okay, great. So, you know, hello and all, all that jazz. And then a few minutes later, she goes, uh, in order to check into the hotel, we need to collect your passports. And we're all thinking like, maybe, maybe I've had that happen on a trip in high school, you know, where <laughs> our, my teacher says, okay, we need to collect your passports. Uh, that seemed okay. But in this moment, like handing over your passport while inside the country, yeah, but but also, what's the alternative? Right, yeah. you know, we're not going to like, you know, uh, you know, all of a sudden become mutinous on the bus. So we hand over the passports, and then she makes a joke. She says, "Okay, at the end of this trip, we're going to give you a quiz on all of the Korean language I taught you. If you pass, you get your passport back." And we're all looking at each other like we think that's a joke, but <laughs> but we're not sure. We're not sure. <laughs> And we're not sure if we want to tempt fate. So let me tell you, I, I was taking notes on every Korean word she taught us. I bet. So, Do you know if any, uh, anyone else failed? Did anyone fail on the trip? Do you know? No, no. So yeah, I, in the end, she actually didn't, uh, didn't give, us a, okay. give us a quiz, but she, she was great. Kim was great. We, um, we tried, you know, as we're walking through all of these monuments and looking at things, there are opportunities where the, the group kind of splinters off and we had chances to talk to her one-on-one. And there were moments where we asked her questions and her response uh, led me to believe that there's definitely more, uh, what she's saying is not necessarily what she believes. Like a, a, great, a great instance of this is, there's some legendary story about uh, Kim, Kim, uh, Kim's father, Kim Il-sung, I believe, uh, had like, like at nine years old, he hit a, a bullseye from like a hundred meters the very first time he picked up a bow and arrow, something along those lines. Uh, and so we visited the actual spot where, where it happened and we're walking away and we, we go to our tour guide, Kim, we're like nine years old, first time bullseye. And she's like, yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, you could, you could tell that she was like, yeah, this story does not really hold up in the face of uh, questioning. Th there are a few moments like that where we asked her questions and we felt like we were going to get a, a bit of a, a crack in the narrative that she was giving us. Um, but it didn't come, didn't come too often. So uh, one, of the, one of the places we went to, this is a fun one, we went to the Korean War Museum. Uh, so the Korean War Memorial, I forget exactly what they call it, but they, uh, it's a pretty impressive looking museum. So you walk through a massive outdoor courtyard, like you're walking through Buckingham Palace, except that it's lined with tanks, planes, uh, shrapnel, like the, the ac actual items used in war, you know, refurbished mm. a bit. Um, so we're, we're there and the tour guide is there and she's uh, a younger North Korean girl that speaks excellent English and she's giving us a tour. She's got a microphone on dressed in a military uniform, uh, pretty stern face. And so she just kind of bluntly asked, do we have any Americans with us today? And the few Americans on a trip we're, we're, we're used to this by now. We were asked this a few times. <clears throat> right. So we just, we like sheepishly raise our hands. Yep. We're over here. She goes, mm, okay, that's good continues walking from that point forward every time she referenced americans when speaking about the war she always said american imperialists american imperialists like it was like a set phrase uh mm -hmm. that she didn't she didn't um you know move away from uh so we're like okay fair enough uh they at one point during the war uh, by the way th their version of history is a little bit different from other people's version of history uh in order and according to them the the south started the war uh, not the North. Uh, and uh, there was, uh, they won. The North won. Uh, right. Instead of it being a stalemate. Yeah. 
but hey, we're, you know, when we heard these uh, facts, we we didn't we didn't bother to question. You didn't. Again, you didn't okay, you didn't argue. What, what are we gonna do? Um, <laughs> but the the best part of this the the museum bit is uh, at one point we wanted to take a picture of something, and she said no pictures. We didn't know why. Um, we didn't know if it was there was it was actually of an oil painting. So you know, sometimes flash photography can affect oil. Uh, I, I don't know if it was that or for some other reason, but we decided. Uh, okay, you know, she said no pictures. Put your phones away. She was pretty, pretty adamant about that. No more than a few minutes later, the lights go out in the entire place. All of the electricity went out, and this happens regularly in North Korea, right? They just don't have uh, the the infrastructure or the amount of power going through the grid to keep sustained electricity on all the time. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> one of the guys on the trip, such a wise guy, he takes out his phone, turns on his flashlight, and goes, "Is it okay to have my phone out now?" <laughs> and the look on her face she was like okay yeah that's fine so uh that happened like two or three times throughout the throughout the tour at the museum where we had to take out our phones and offer her some light so yeah. so, so that was that was a good one uh the dmz so we went out to the demilitarized zone yeah uh, this was a fun one so we went got on the bus uh and we were going out out of the city massive highway going through the countryside and at some point there was a road barrier uh, and a few military or guys that looked like they were in the military at the barrier bus pulls up they speak to the two kims uh you know they're going back and forth in korean we don't really know what they're saying but it definitely looks like this road barrier was a surprise to the kims so we we immediately go off of the highway onto this dirt road and we spend the next three hours driving to the zmz on dirt roads through small towns desolate looking farms uh, and as soon as we got on that dirt road, the Kim said, no photos. They're like from here until we get to the DMZ, do not take any photos. So we don't really know what was going on. Our best guess is that the military shut down the highway for something, transporting a missile, military drill. I don't think it was construction, but either way, the, the Kims did not know about this. You know, they're all, they all work for the government. So if it was something that they could have known, then I think they would have known. But my guess is it was something classified that they weren't informed of. And so we went down a route where we were now not allowed to take photos. So yeah. it was something that was not on their itinerary. So the photo rule changed immediately. As soon yeah. as we got to the DMZ, yeah, take all the photos you want. Yeah. And were there things that you saw on the way there that uh, yeah, that you would have wanted to take photos of? I mean, how desolate was it? Was there anything that was really sort of shocking uh, yeah, driving through it, those areas? I, you know, nothing that would have... Um, like cause for a humanitarian crisis like there were there were certainly it was you know it was cold it was still cold in march especially up there in the mountains uh so some people you know in like a uh, bit raggedy clothing on bicycles with massive uh you know it looked like they were just carrying their entire house on their back uh that's something that you would see in other places in the world uh yeah. there were definitely some smallish looking towns of like one-story structures didn't look like there was much electricity there um, I, I, you know, I don't know if these were, you know, places where people were actually living or temporary settlements for something, uh, foul, uh, fields that looked like they would grow nothing. We saw a lot of that. We actually visited a, a farm, a quote unquote farm, uh, on a separate portion of the trip. And the guy was explaining how they take care of things. And I, I, I've been on farms in a few different countries in the month of March. None of them looked like this unless they were yeah. growing rocks, but that's all, you know, it just looked like um unworkable land yeah. uh yeah so th th those are the, the kinds of things that we were seeing uh yeah so uh i i, I could see that w there was the potential to see something far worse 
you know, and yeah. I, I can imagine that the Kims didn't know what might be seen on the way. So they just kiboshed the pictures. Sure. And what was the DMZ like? Uh, Interesting. So I, a few of the guys that we went with had been to the DMZ on the south side, on the South okay. Korean side. So I think that was a little bit more interesting for them, seeing it from both angles. Yeah. Um, but it was this was my first time at either of the DMZs. It was definitely, uh, you were definitely in a, so even though it's a demilitarized zone, uh, <laughs> it was very militarized. Um, yeah. So it was, uh, yeah, lots of you know, going through different gates, uh, everyone there kind of working, working in a, in a military uniform. We received a bit of a tour from someone there, uh, uh, who we, there, I think the armistice was signed there and we were at the table in the hall where that was signed. There were a few memorial, you know, pictures on the wall of the, the, the political players at the time that were there. Mm. Uh, the, the, the biggest memory, uh, of the DMZ came when we were on a balcony overlooking, uh, the area where I think like Trump and Kim Jong-un met, you know, that, that famous scene, we were yep. standing right over there and we were being spoken to by, uh, the guy who looked very general, like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll share the photo with you later, but stern face, not the type of guy you would want to meet in a lit room, let alone a back alley. So he's talking, uh, while this is happening, uh, a few guys lived in Korea that joined the trip, you know, a few, a few Americans they were able to get cell phone service because they were so close to the uh, South Korean border. Okay. So they were actually able to get on their phone, which was something that we hadn't been able to do for like seven days. Yeah, so yeah. they're behind us while that's happening. And we're listening to this guy. And then that same wise guy that brought out his phone at the Korean War Museum asked, the, asked our interpreter, Kim, to say, hey, uh, there, there are two massive flagpoles. Uh, at the DMZ, North Korea, South Korea. So this guy points out to the general looking fella, hey, the uh, did you know the South Korean pole is larger? And Kim's like, do you really want me to say that to this guy? He's like, yeah, can you please translate? Just let him let him know that the South Korean one is bigger than the North Korean one. And we're sitting here like, please, like, don't do this. She says it to the guy, just 180 in his face, you know? So he just looks at him sternly, starts going off on Korean. And the very first thing that Kim translates what he said was something to the effect of, do you know that with our missiles, we could destroy Hawaii tomorrow? And then blah, 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 all, all this stuff. And meanwhile, while that's happening now, <laughs> the guys that were getting South Korean phone service, now they're tethering to other people that are like checking Facebook and like live streaming this. And we're like, I'm like, I, I move uh, over to the far side because I, I did not want to be involved with any of that. Uh, we we got out of there unscathed. It was, uh, it, was, it was definitely an interesting experience. I'm looking forward to going to the South Korean side just to gain a little bit of perspective. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what was it um, like sort of driving through the city? Um, how did it feel like compared to other cities? Uh, were, were there sort of shops? Because you, you hear about um, almost like a, a, um, a placard being putting on, put on where it looks like a normal city from the outside, but if you go into a shop, there's no actual shop there. Um, what were your sort of experiences in the city itself? Yeah, so driving around the city is actually quite beautiful. I, I I like driving around it. It reminded me a bit of like a, a Nagoya or a Fukuoka in the '60s or '70s. Um, a little bit older style architecture, very Soviet influenced, very colorful. Surprisingly, uh, the mm -hmm. buildings, uh, very wide streets. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure why. I don't know if it gets heavy traffic or if it's just a uh, an outwardly show of you know. Uh, of wealth or if it's just useful for military parades, but it was a quiet city. There were definitely people walking around and doing things. Um, 
there were, um, you know, you saw, you saw children walking around, saw people on bicycles, people with, you know, shopping bags, uh, you know, not like a, a general store shopping bag, but like a non-name, non-plastic bag, uh, non-brand name. Uh, it was eerily normal, eerily yeah. normal. I wouldn't say it was like Tokyo normal. You, you definitely felt that there was something a little off. Um, the cars were a little bit older, you know, lots of old, old, like 60s Mercedes, maybe old cars from China or Russia. I think that's where they do most of their trading with North Korea. Yeah. Uh, we, in terms of what you mentioned with like the store, we did have one experience with a store. Um, we, we'd heard that there was a department store that other foreigners had traveled to when they went to North Korea. So we asked them if we could stop by the store during a time when we had a bit of um, kind of discretionary time in the schedule. And yeah, Kim said, yeah, let me, let me just call and make sure that they're open. Let me see if it's possible. And we're like, call, it's 2 p.m. on a Tuesday. Like, is it a national holiday or? So, okay, that was flag number one. And then she said, yep, they'll be open. So, okay. So we, we pull into the parking lot. So it's like a five-story department store in a parking lot of 12 spots. So, okay, the, you know, that, that was another red flag. So we park. As we go in, the lights are being turned on. Uh, it, it's almost like, you know, the, it, it was an afterthought that they needed to turn on the lights. We were the only people in there aside from those working there. Uh, and everyone working there, you know, you know, ladies in their 30s or 40s, all wearing kind of a uniform, kind of scurrying around cleaning up with like one person behind a register. Uh, right. it, it was not what you would normally find in a department store. It looked like, imagine if you just went to somewhere in the suburbs, raided every garage sale you could find, and then dumped everything in there. Uh, mm -hmm. So you would have like, you know, a big uh, dollhouse next to like a, a, a toy giraffe. And then there's like a bunch of like cans of Coca-Cola next to a lawn chair. You're like, okay, these, I wouldn't expect these things to be all put together. Uh, they shelve things to make it look like there was more than there actually was. So in, in most shelving in stores, you stack things behind each other and on yeah. top of each other. Here, everything was like pushed to the front, mm -hmm. almost like at a convenience store in Japan when there are like only four rice balls left, they're all at the front. Yeah. It was like that, but everything was organized that way. And it was only because they didn't have that much stuff. And then what was interesting is, uh, so one of the guys on our trip, he was at the time, the, uh, the uh, German ambassador to China. He was on our trip, great guy. Uh, yeah, he was, a, he was a room mood lifter for sure. But he tried to buy this massive dollhouse. I think it was there at this department store. And it was just, it was ridiculous. It was absurd. absurd. He just wanted to like put it back in his office as like a memento, but they wouldn't sell it to him. It wasn't for sale. Uh, and then we, we started thinking like, is, is anything, anything for sale? For sale? <laughs> like, what, what is the purpose of this? And then, you know, we, so we, we messed up, we experimented and we found that you could buy things that were easily replaceable. So can of Coke, uh, mm -hmm. certain candy bars, that kind of thing, uh, they would sell you. But anything that was kind of like large and showy and filled space, those, those were off limits. Yeah. Yeah, wow. so that, that, was, that was the department store. We did take a, the subway, we took a train uh that was that was pretty fascinating it was um i all of the trains there are very similar to train stations in russia or subway stations they're buried pretty deep so i think yeah. they also double as as bunkers um or you know even just you know places to escape during any emergency i think a lot of countries do that um but beautiful beautiful subway stations very ornate uh again very very similar to those in russia just you know, some stained glass, mosaic tiles, pillars, monuments. 
Uh, and of course, you know, the, the two pictures of, of, of the leaders were always there. Uh, yeah. e even not just in the, in the subway station, but also on the train cars themselves. Um, really? They were kind of everywhere, omnipresent. Um, yeah, the trains definitely, that was the biggest like 1950s, 1960s vibe I received. So on the middle of the train platforms, there were these, uh, you know, it kind of looked like a phone booth, but instead of it being a phone booth, it was just that day's newspaper hung up. So, and people were there reading around, like crowding around. And I just remember thinking like, is this an actual thing that's done? It felt wow. very Truman Show-esque, you know, yeah. like, are these people yeah. here just to <laughs> make our experience better? But uh, at the end of the day, it is, it is a large city. Uh, you know, people are employed by the government, if you will. So they do have things to do. They do have places to go and tasks to accomplish. So yeah, to some extent, it's, it just functions like a normal city. Are you sore, tired, stressed, or just in the need of a good massage? Club 360 boasts six highly trained and experienced massage therapists, with sessions available at both of our locations. Until the end of December, new clients can enjoy 30% off their first massage. Contact info at club360.jp for more details. And then uh, what about the actual hockey itself? Ah, okay, so the hockey itself. So uh, we, we, one of the organizers of the trip was Michael Spaver. So I don't know if you recall his name, but if you, uh, he was one of the co-organizers with that guy, Scott Howe. And Michael Spaver is uh, an interesting character. I've, I've met him a few times. If you Google his name, he's best known for two things. The first, he, um, you know, the uh, former NBA star, Dennis Rodman? Yes. Yep. Okay. So he went to North Korea. And yeah, this yeah. guy, Michael Spaver, was in, uh, apparently pretty instrumental, or I shouldn't say instrumental. If you Google him, there are pictures of Kim Jong-un, Michael Spaver, and Dennis Rodman together. Right. So I think Michael uh, was somewhat involved in planning of the trip, uh, mostly because he had some connections to, uh, to North Korea. Michael Spaver used to live in North Korea. He speaks Korean. I think he, you know, um, he, so he's, he's been there many, many times. That's the first thing that he's known for. The second thing is, uh, so a couple of years ago, <clears throat> maybe three or four years ago, the uh, daughter, maybe the CFO of Huawei, the Chinese telecommunications company, was detained in Vancouver uh, by the Canadian government by request of the American government. Uh, I, I forget the exact reason, tax fraud or something along those lines. So she was detained. And then in retaliation, the Chinese government detained two Michaels, uh, Michael Spaver and the other guy's name here, Michael Korvig. They were detained and imprisoned in China uh, on just you know ridiculous claims of espionage. And they were there for about three years. Um, yeah, uh, going through secret trials, they were imprisoned. Uh, and it was just recently, maybe a couple months ago now, uh, the daughter was released from Vancouver, the daughter of uh, the CEO's uh, of Huawei, she was allowed to return to China. And that's when the two Michaels were then released, uh, allowed to go back to Canada, where, uh, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau actually met them at, at the airport, welcoming mm. them back. I haven't had a chance to reach out to him since, Michael. Um, I, I want to at some point, but he was one of the people on that trip, uh, you know, helping it all, organizing it. And he was wow. like one of the only people that spoke Korean. So he was actually quite helpful in that regard. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, so him being there helped us get uh, him and then Scott Howe's father working with the Special Olympics 
and the North Korean Olympic Committee allowed us to get a connection to actually play against the North Korean national team. Uh, wow. Okay. So, so we're playing them. So, uh, what do you think? North Korean national team, good, not good. I, I mentioned they play in the IHF, like tier four or something. What would you imagine? Well, I mean, if, if they're in a national team, you'd expect them to be of some quality, but uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, that they, wasn't the case. Well, so we, um, in the trip, we were kind of thinking, are should we are we allowed to win that was our that was our mentality yeah. we we're like what are we allowed to win like what would happen if we embarrass them etc cetera, etc cetera. uh fortunately we did not have to worry about that because they just absolutely whooped us the first game they are all decent players i wouldn't say anyone has like a great individual skill i think we had one or two guys that were better individual players than them but they pr- played together, they practiced together, they had a good team game. Whereas we, as I mentioned before, are just a bunch of guys that came together on this trip. You know, and it doesn't mean that uh, all of the guys that came were great hockey players. We were just hockey players that wanted to go to North Korea. Mm-hmm. So uh, the first game, yeah, they just kind of like wiped the floor with us. And what was kind of interesting is up on the scoreboard, you know, it said North Korea, and then our team was labeled Canada. Uh, I don't know uh, where, where that decision came from. I guess it was just simplest, but uh, I it probably made them feel good. Wasn't labeled the imperialists. No, thank you. Yeah, no, it was not labeled the imperialists. So yeah, their hockey was good. We actually even had a training session with them uh, on okay. the ice. So uh, before we actually every day was filled with a lot of hockey. It was um, a few days. We had a training session in the morning for about two hours, hour and a half, two hours. And then we had a game at night, a full on three periods, either 15 or 20 minutes with stop time, uh, referees. I think we had a good number of people in the crowd, maybe three, 400 people came to watch. Okay. Uh, so, this, so that was quite fun. Yeah, they, uh, they played well. They definitely played well. Uh, we played three matches with them in total. Uh, the first two matches, the second match was a little bit closer because I think they kind of let up a little bit. Um, yeah. Plus we as hockey players just started to gel a little bit more. We kind of figured it out. Um, also you can imagine the first time you're playing hockey in North Korea, it's a, you're a little bit jittery, right? Uh, when we look back at the photos, their entire bench is just sitting down at the beginning of the game. Our entire bench is like standing up or on edge. Like, is this, is this actually happening? Uh, the the arena itself is gorgeous. It looks like a massive concrete teepee. And at the top of the teepee is almost like a rainbow colored looking light. It looks like what you would imagine you would enter a spaceship through. Um, and so the entire structure is kind of pinpointing up toward that. Uh, meanwhile, you have the two pictures of the leaders, you know, across from you, looking at you as you're playing. It was just a surreal experience. So our yeah. mind was hockey was the furthest, furthest thing from our mind. Yeah. Uh, the locker room is a blast. So we didn't have a goalie on our trip. So the North Korean team lent us one of their goalies. Wow. And this guy was amazing. He, he was like a fish out of water. So as odd as it was for us to be sitting in a rink in North Korea, it must've been equally odd for him as a North Korean sitting in the locker room between periods surrounded by a bunch of Americans and Canadians. He was the only North Korean in the room. Yeah. Uh, so he definitely felt a little bit on edge. Uh, we tried to lighten up, lighten up the mood. We started playing eighties rock music. Uh, that German ambassador, he started doing some like Frank Sinatra acapella uh, and, you know, just to loosen the boys up a bit. Uh, but it, it, we, we started talking to the goalie, to the translator, and he was, he had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder because, you know, essentially the North Korean team just tossed him to the foreigners and be like, Hey, you yeah. go play with them. And then the other guy got to the start. So he had something to prove. He wanted to, uh, 
let the North Koreans know that he should be the number one goalie. That, yeah. that was a, that was a good little experience. Yeah. Wow. So the, uh, the, the, the best story that came from this hockey game was the final, the final match. So the first two matches, it was the, the visiting team versus the North Koreans. The final game, we actually mixed up the teams. So uh, it was pretty split, even, even. And so on the bench, you're sitting next to North Korean players and you have to, you know, we, we all had the right jerseys on. And now all of a sudden I'm, this is my teammate. So I don't speak Korean. You know, this guy doesn't speak English, but we need to communicate at least to know what side of what position we're playing, right wing or left wing. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of, lot of charades, a lot of, you know, pointing on your hands about where to be. Uh, you know, even lines, we didn't have a coach. So who's going out with who, uh, it was, it was pretty interesting. It was so discombobulated. Um, you could tell that, uh, it, it was going to devolve pretty quickly, but not in a way that we imagined. <clears throat> so we're playing the game and the captain was on our team, the captain of the North Korean team. And at some point he comes over to my gloves and he, he just starts like, like feeling it. And he's like, Oh, Oh, can I see, can I see? Uh, I don't know the exact words, what he's saying, but that was the sentiment. He took it, he tried it on and he had this look like, yeah, I <laughs> he like locked this. it. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I, me too. <laughs> what do you know? Uh, and then I realized that he wanted it. And, you know, like these North Korean players, if you look, a lot of their equipment was really old secondhand stuff, probably from mm. like old military uh, or uh, old teams, uh, Russian teams in Vladivostok, you know, East Russia. Yeah. Uh, some of the guys, they didn't have enough sticks actually in the first game we saw them. So one guy would come off and hand his stick to the next guy going yeah, on. Well. Yeah. That was when we, we had a bit of a, 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 a stick donation. I think we donated, I don't know, 60 something sticks to the team, like new carbon fiber ones that they could use because, you know, yeah. they, they don't have the funds. They can't just go on Amazon and get something new. So yeah. we, we, we felt, um, we felt that was the right thing to do, but now, now he's looking at my gloves and I'm like, okay, well, what, let's make it, let's make a deal here. And I was like, what about your Jersey? You know? And he's like, Oh no, no, I can't give you the, can't give you the Jersey. Anyway, then we remember we're still in the middle of the hockey game. So he gets on the ice and we keep going next thing, you know, there's, there's no, there's no barrier between the two benches. So you can just kind of go back and forth. And then the, the, the guy, Michael Spaver, he was kind of there acting as a bit of a translator going back and forth. Uh, at the same time, uh, Soju, uh, you know, the Korean liquor, uh, found its way in some of the water bottles on the benches. So it, it turned into a bit of a, okay, let's have a few drinks. We're playing this hockey game. <laughs> then it turned into like this underground black market exchange where like, you know, so they want the new sticks and we're like, yeah, we'll give you this stick if you give me yours. Because for us, we wanted the, the memento of a, a yeah, stick yeah, yeah. from North Korea. And it's just between the two benches. It was really, it was, the only thing I can describe it as is like, like, yeah, like the Silk Road in the 700s, right? Where everyone's just like, all right, I'll give you this if you give me that. Ah, but I don't know, this guy had a better deal. Let me go see if he's still willing to do this. And yeah. just equipment was just moving in all different directions. And then wow. of course, as that happens, the price for things go up. So the prize <laughs> uh, is was the North Korean jersey, right? Yeah. So for those watching the video, you can see behind me up on the wall, yeah. that is an actual jersey from a player in North Korea. And so um, I wanted, it's number eight, which is uh, one of my numbers when I play. And I found number eight on the other team. And I've respected this guy because he, I blocked a shot and it went off my shin guard. And it was probably the hardest shot that I've ever felt it. I felt like it bruised my bone for a few days. It was mm. just, I was, I was limping. Of course, I'm, you know, I'm not going to go to a hospital in North Korea. So I just sucked it up, carried on. But I was like that guy, I want that guy's jersey. 
So I'm, I, I, I get the, uh, get the transit. I'm going to him. I was like, Hey, kind of want your Jersey. What do you need? And then I saw his skates and his skates looked like they'd been chewed up by a shark. So I, I asked him for, um, his, his skate size, you know, this is all through transit, of course, but asked him for a skate size and it wasn't quite the same size as mine, but he didn't care. I was like, okay, let's make a deal. I'll give you my skates. If you give me your Jersey. So he was okay. Okay. And then he decided, he said he was going to do it after the game. And I was like, really? Okay. After the game. And then, so meanwhile, I, I want to, I don't know if I'm actually going to get this Jersey. So I'm losing out on potential opportunities during the game because I'm waiting for something at the end. So yeah. I put trust in the process and I said, okay, so everything, my skates were off limits. Um, anyway, after the game, he, uh, we agreed to meet in the hallway. So I meet him. He's changed in somewhat normal clothing and he, he has his Jersey underneath his Jersey. So we get into the uh, hallway. I hand him my skates. He takes out his Jersey, gives it to me. I snap a quick selfie and walk off. Now I don't know why he had to hide the Jersey. Leads me to believe that if someone saw him doing that, that wouldn't be great. Yeah. Uh, but then we also heard that it's fine if you left with the jersey and it was a gift. So maybe it was just his positioning on the team where he shouldn't have done that. I'm, I have no idea. All I know is that I was able to leave the country with it. And now uh, I've got a great memento for skates here in Tokyo. Absolutely. That's yeah. so cool. <laughs> um uh, Chris, I think you could go on forever with these stories. Um, yeah. It's amazing hearing about all this. Um, and obviously, North Korea is, is the main thing that we got you on to talk about. Um, yeah. I, I guess just quickly, what are some of the other places that uh, you've gone to um, with, with, you, with your hockey? I mean, you mentioned some of the, I guess, the, the more standard places for these hockey tournaments. But um, where are some of the other more sort of far out places that you've been to? Sure, sure. Uh, so two of them that come to mind, uh, and both of these were done through the Friendship League, organized by Scott Howe. Uh, he, we went to Turkmenistan mm -hmm. back uh, in 2017, I want to say. Uh, Turkmenistan is a very, yeah, you might need to look it up on a map. Most people don't know where it is. It's kind of nestled there in Central Asia in the stands. Uh, what most people don't know is that uh, for a number of years, more people actually travel to North Korea than to Turkmenistan. Uh, it's not a place that a lot of people go. Yeah. Uh, it also has a fairly strict government, hard to get into. Uh, the city was laid out very similarly in that it was super opulent. Uh, so much white marble imported from Italy and Spain to deck out the city. It's known as like the white city. It's all gold and, and, uh, and marble, all from natural gas money. That was incredible. Uh, we got a chance to play, not with the national team, but with one of their club teams where most of the members are, you know, make up the national team. Uh, these guys were excellent. Uh, the best thing about Turkmenistan is that there weren't as many restrictions on what you could do or where you could go. So we actually got to hang out with the hockey team outside of the rink. Um, yeah. You know, they, they were driving us around the city. We were going to the bars with them. And what was really great is that, so they, they also have a, uh, you know, a big military presence in Turkmenistan, all of the ice hockey guys there were also in the military. Mm -hmm. And so uh, their job is to play hockey and then do a few other things. And then when they're not able to make the team anymore, then they just go full on with their military job. So yeah, yeah we, the goalie on the team, for instance, was a helicopter pilot for the president of the country. Uh, so he was, and he was telling a few stories and actually the goalie on our team that visited went to his wedding on the trip. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Really, you know, it's like, you know, we're hanging out at the bar. It's like 10 p.m., you know, and he's getting texts from the goalie saying, hey, are you coming to my wedding? And then our goalie, Trevor's like, yeah, man, I'm coming. 
And then a few minutes later, he shows up in a tuxedo. He's like, yeah, I'm going to pick you up. I'm like, you're the groom and you're picking up this random foreigner that's in the country to go to your wedding. And the wedding photos are hilarious. Everyone's in tuxedos, you know, bride, she looks amazing. And there's Trevor in a hoodie and jeans <laughs> just at this wedding. <laughs> so yeah, Turkmenistan was amazing. Uh, then the most recent trip, uh, you know, before the pandemic hit back in December uh, 2019, we went to Kenya. Uh, and again, for those watching the video, that's the, uh, the jersey behind me, the Kenya. green one. The team there, the Ice Lions. Uh, mm. These guys are incredible. Look them up if you haven't, if you haven't heard of them before. Uh, they play, there's one rink in all of Kenya. It's in the Panari Hotel, this five-star uh, five facility. Uh, in the basement, there's a tiny rink. You know, rinks are rounded in the corners. This is a square. It's really like a rectangle, uh, yeah. tiny. They're so passionate. Um, Tim Hortons, the famous coffee chain in, in Canada, did a, did a PR piece on them. Uh, the whole thing with the Kenyan Ice Lines is that they don't have a place to, they don't have a team to play against. So Tim Hortons flew out the entire team to Canada to play against a real team. They got them all decked out with brand new gear. And then they had two NHL superstars, Sidney Crosby and Nathan McKinnon, join the team. So there's this beautiful video online of these two superstars, best players in the world, walk into the locker room wearing the Ice Lions jerseys. And you just see tears come out of the eyes of the Ice Lions. And while we were in Kenya, we actually got to speak with um, one, of the, one of the guys on the team, Robert. He designed the jersey and he was just explaining the feeling he had seeing, you know, Sidney Crosby wearing his jersey. He said yeah. it, he was absolutely speechless. They're so passionate there in Kenya. Uh, and that's one of the things that I love about these trips, just to kind of wrap this all up, is the goal is really to make friendships and connections and spread, spread that through the game of hockey. And mm. obviously, you know, when, you know, in uh, in Kenya and Turkmenistan, we were certainly welcomed and they have a, you know, Kenya doesn't have a culture of ice hockey yet, Turkmenistan a little bit. The real interesting thing came when we were on the bench in North Korea and I was sitting next to this guy. In any other circumstance, this situation is entirely political and you, that's all you want to talk about. You want to talk about the things that are going on in the news between relations and countries. But in that moment, we were playing sport. He was a teammate yeah. and we had to communicate however we could because we shared a common goal at that moment. Yeah. And that's, that's something that I'll, I'll never forget. Yeah, no, that's, that's really special. Um, if people are listening and, and they want to uh, get involved with this type of thing, um, how would they go about doing so? Yeah, that's great. Uh, you can got the friendshipleague.org. Uh, friendshipleague.org. This is Scott Howe's organization. Uh, if you go on there, you'll see photos of all of these trips that I just mentioned. They do other ones. They did a soccer trip to North Korea as well. Okay. They did a flag football trip to Costa Rica. Uh, our next trip, uh, they just they just came back from Egypt playing ice, ice hockey. Uh, and our next one is in Ecuador. Hopefully uh, it's postponed. So not in December. It's actually postponed to March, which is great for my knee. Oh, recovery really? Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, so that's good nice. news. Uh <laughs> But yeah, friendshipleague.org or, um, you know, if you have show notes, you're welcome to put my email address there. I'm happy to talk to anyone about this, give, give you some more information. Okay, fantastic. Well, um, yeah, I'll, I'll look forward to you uh, coming in the clinic again and, uh, yeah, I'm picking your brain about more of this stuff because it, uh, it truly is fascinating. Um, but, uh, yeah, Chris, the imperialist, uh, thank you very much for your time <laughs> today. And, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see you again soon. My pleasure. Happy to do it. Thanks. All right, take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Tokyo Living Podcast. 
If you enjoyed the content, we'd love for you to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you'd like to enjoy your podcast. We look forward to seeing you again on the next episode. Have a healthy and active week.